might have because that's where his grandmom and dad used to live.
And let's stand this evening. We're going to sing an old hymn of the church that simply just says, We shall see the King when He comes. Let's worship the Lord.
temple to give you glory, Lord. Lift you, Lord. so glad that you made it to be in the house of the Lord uh, this evening, and we're going to uh, segue into the remaining portion of uh, our service. Brother Causey, while you're there, will you grab that microphone? I'm going to have you open us up in prayer. You might have to unmute that for him, guys. It might be muted on the bottom. But I'm going to ask you to open us up in prayer this evening, if you don't mind today. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. We can go to the Lord tonight and take our petitions to Him. In fact, that's what I was preaching on this morning. Invitation to pray. Amen. Pray to, to be prayed for, and to pray with. Aren't you so glad this morning that we have this opportunity? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, everybody praying. Father, we thank you again for... The privilege, dear Lord, to be able to come before you with our needs. and God, we know that you can supply all our needs according to your riches and glory. We're thankful today, God, so much for your presence that we felt in such a special way. We pray, dear God, you encourage and lift up each and every one here tonight. They be sick among us. We pray, God, that you would heal that sickness. There's some kind of emotional need or, Lord, hallelujah, affliction of any sort, we can bring it to you. Dear Lord, we know, dear God, you're greater than any problem that we ever face or ever come into. You're God and God alone, sovereign, mighty. Thank you for the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Thank you, God, for all that you've done. We'll be careful tonight. It can be the honor and the praise and the glory for it all. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's remain standing this evening. Let's go right back into worship. This is an old praise chorus written in 1984 that just simply says, Great and mighty is the Lord our God. Great and mighty is He. So let's worship together.
Great and mighty is He. Great and mighty is the Lord our God. Great and mighty is He.
nothing like the sweet, sweet spirit of the Lord. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord just for a moment. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to go to the book of Zechariah chapter 13. And if it's like it is in your Bible, like it is in my Bible, you'll, you'll be only about one page over from Malachi and we'll be there as well. While you're turning, let me make mention to our online guests, due to the way service was this morning, I didn't do that, but you can always find out what's going on at our church by downloading the app in Google and Apple Store called Our Church. Then search Santee Circle Church of God once it's downloaded. Any information regarding events and things that are happening and anything you need to know is on our website, SanteeCircleCOG.org. You can give online. You can do everything right there online. If you like any service, want to go back and hear a service, don't know how to use Facebook or YouTube, you can always download podcasts. You can get on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen to them off your phone, and uh, right there at Santee Circle, COG, always on Facebook and YouTube are our services downloaded there as well. You can always watch those archived as well. As always, for our online guests, you can always give in-house if you're here, and you can always mail it at 1211 North Highway 52, Monks Corner, South Carolina, 29461. You can download the uh, tithe.ly app, uh, and you can do it off of there by searching Santee Circle COG. Or you can go to our website, SanteeCircleCOG.org, uh, backslash give, and it will give you all of that information. But I meant to mention that this morning and completely forgot uh, about that. Zechariah chapter 13, once you have it, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. If you're able, if you're not, we completely understand. But if you are, we ask that you stand to honor the word of the Lord. We're going to read this entire chapter. It's only nine verses long. We're going to read it very quickly, and then we'll flip a page over to Malachi 3, 1 through 3. On that day, it says, the Lord, a fountain will be opened from the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for the sin and for defilement. It will come about on that day, declares the Lord of armies, that I will eliminate the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirits from the land. God's going to do a purging. And if anyone still prophesies, then his mother and his father who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live because you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother who gave him birth shall pierce him through when he prophesies. Also it will come about on that day that the prophets will be ashamed of his own vision and when he prophesies. And they will not 
put on the hairy robe in order to deceive. But he was saying to himself, I am not a prophet. I am a cultivator of the ground because a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And someone will say to him, well, what are the wounds between your arms? He will say, those are the wounds which I was wounded at the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate declares the Lord of armies. If you strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it will come about that in that land, declares the Lord, the two parts of it will be cut off and perish. But a third will remain as a remnant will be left in it. And I'll take that third part, even though they're going to see two-thirds of the, the world annihilated, wiped off the planet, I'll take that third part. Though they've already been through a lot of trouble, though they've been through a lot of struggle, though they've been through a lot of pain and adversity, after they've come through being the third part, the one-third remnant, then I'm going to put them through fire again. Refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. I will call on my name. They will call on my name and I will answer them and they will say they are my people and I will clear, say to them that they will say unto me that the Lord is my God. Malachi 3. In verse 1, Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will be a clear way before me. And the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand before him when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them as gold and silver so that they may be present to the Lord as offerings of righteousness. They will be present to the Lord, offerings of righteousness. I want to talk just for a few moments about the four R's of true revival. You see, most people think Revival is something we should have about twice a year. Bring in some guest speaker, come here Monday through or come here Sunday through Friday. Invite all our unsaved loved ones, let them come in here and let them all get saved and have a powerful crusade and you know, leave out of here and say, "Boy, pastor, didn't we have a revival?" Um, no, we didn't. You can't revive something that's never been alive. Revival is not for the sinner it's for the saint because the only person that can be revived is something that's already been alive before so we know how to revive it so that it can live again you don't put if something is dead and it's never been alive you don't put the little shock things and revive its heartbeat if it never had a heartbeat to shock back there was no reason it had to live at some point to revive it revival literally means to Revive or bring back to life. Well, if you're say if you've never known who Jesus Christ was, you've never truly started living. See, when you're unsaved and you give your heart to Jesus Christ, that's not revival. That is regeneration, and that is a resurrection of something that's dead. Revival is taking that heart and restoring it back to a, if you will, a place that it once was before. So while we can have revivals throughout the years and communities and things like that and yes people still can get saved in those moments revival is literally for the church the church has to get revived 
That's who needs revival, not the sinner. The sinner needs a salvation crusade. The church needs revival again. What are the four R's of true revival? Heavenly Father, to the best of my ability, help me to preach your word to the people of God. Help me to speak, Lord, only what you want spoken, and let be heard only that which you want heard. Let every I be dotted, every T be crossed. That would bring glory and honor to you. Let us not be hearers of this word only. But doers of it as well. Open our eyes, our hearts and ears to the receptive message. Hide me behind the cross. Take a coal from the altars of heaven. Anoint these lips of clay. And let me speak like a man from a different world. Not because I'm special. But because you are special. And let you and your word be glorified, lifted up, magnified. And sent forth to accomplish the task that you have assigned it to do. In Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. And the people of God together said amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Four R's of true revival. We read in our reading today out of the book of Zechariah chapter 13. To understand this writing we have to do a little bit of background and historical context to understand what's happening. I am one, when I was in school, I loved the days that we had history class. My particular school that I went to had block scheduling, and so on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you had certain classes, and on Tuesday, Thursday, you had certain classes, and then the second half of the year, in January, your Tuesday, Thursdays went to Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and your Monday, Wednesday, Friday flipped to Tuesday, Thursdays. And I loved it when History was on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That means I got to go three days because that meant science was on Tuesday, Thursday. I hated that class. I didn't care how you blew it up. I, You know, I took chemistry class. I blew up so many of them little glass jars and stuff in chemistry class. I don't know what I mixed together. You know, my little chemistry teacher would be like, so what did you put in there to do that? And I'm like, I don't know, but whatever it was, wasn't right. It blew up. That's not what it was supposed to do. Didn't like that class. I knew right then... Whether God ever called me to it or not, I knew right then God did not call me to do science. Not to be a science teacher, a chemist. That wasn't a good idea for me. I had to find a different. But I loved history class. And I loved listening to the different stories and the accounts of history. And even when I went off to college and uh, started my studies there, uh, one of the prerequisites was you had to take some form of history class. And so I ended up... Uh, signing up just to the way it fell in my block for school for a world uh, Western Civilization class. And I got to study Western Civilization. Man, it was so much fun. I did not like my teacher. He was humpty dumpty. He was huge. He was he was just a nasty little old man. He'd just sit down in his chair with his little top hat, look disgruntled as all get out. And he had this little pointer thing that he'd stick on the board and he'd just kind of gruffly tell you about what was going on he was miserable but the content was amazing it was interesting to me and we would go through different seasons and different uh, uh, lands and we would go through Rome we'd go through Greece we would go through all the Mesopotamian regions we'd talk about the Armenians we'd talk about the Medes and the Persians we'd talk about the Babylonians we'd talk... and for someone like me who was raised in church it was always great when Dr. Miller was up there in his little I hate to be here voice disgruntledly telling us about Western civilization. 
and telling us about there were two rivers called the Tigris and the Euphrates and how they flowed into this delta and Mesopotamian region. And my mind immediately would be like, wow, Genesis tells me there were two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And, and I, could, I could put biblical remembrance of the things that my father and other pastors had preached and it was like coming alive in my Western Civ class. And then they'd start talking about where Nebuchadnezzar came to power and the Babylonians overtook and you know, such and such B.C. And I would remember that there was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar who was there and the Israelites and the story of Daniel and Belteshazzar and all of these things. And it started making sense. And it made just, it just kind of illuminated off the page. But after the Babylonian Empire, there came a group called the Medes and the Persians. In fact, when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, he had a dream of a, of a soldier, if you will, and the helmet was different, the head was different, the neck was different, and the body was different, and the legs were different, and even the body. It was, it was symbolic of all the nations that would come, Babylonian being the start, and then the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, and it just went all down the line. Well, the Medes and the Persians, there rose to power a guy by the name of Darius the Great. Darius the Great. And in Zechariah's writing that we're studying here tonight, it took place during this reign of a man by the name of Darius the Great. You can go back and look at his history, Darius the Great, and what he did. Zechariah was also a contemporary of another prophet we read a lot about whose name is Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah are going hand in hand. They're like two preachers in different parts of the land trying to get the people back to God. They were writing in a post-exilic world, meaning after the exile. All the Israelites have already been exiled. This is after the exile, the great exile of the great dispersion there. And they're writing about this around the fall of Jerusalem in 586 and 87 B.C. Ezekiel and Jeremiah had wrote about Jerusalem prior to the fall. But now Zechariah and Haggai and others are talking about life after the fall of Jerusalem. You see, scholars believe Ezekiel, with his blending of ceremonial writings and visions, heavily influenced the visionary work of men like Zechariah. Zechariah is specific about his dating of his writing. He wrote his book around 520 to 518 BCE or before the Common Era. Most people think it's before Christ, but it actually is before the common era. During this time period, many Jews were taken to Babylon where the prophets actually told them to make houses and homes, Jeremiah 29, suggesting that there would be a long time they would be living in Babylon. Eventually, freedom did come to many Israelites when Cyrus the Great overtook Babylon in 539 B.C.E. In 538 BCE, there was a famous edict. Many of you may, if you've ever studied history, have heard of it. It was called the Edict of Cyrus. This Edict of Cyrus was released, and it was allowing the Jews for the first time under the leadership of a Babylonian Jew named Sheshbazzar to go to Israel or go back to Jerusalem for the very first time after Babylon. Under this Cyrus the Great Edict, the Edict of Cyrus, he was allowing them to go home, finally get to go home home. You see what most people don't realize is not everybody got shipped to Babylon. In fact when Nebuchadnezzar overtook Israel and Jerusalem he only took the best of the best back with him to Babylon. 
That's why you'd see the stories of Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael, also known as Belshazzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They got to go. They were young, strapping, smart men. They got to go. But the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar left some people behind to kind of just let the land be desolate, but just kind of, y'all figure it out on your own. You're not really, we don't really need you. And they just left them there. They were too much of a hassle to take with them. Well, some of these people were there, but, but Cyrus the Great, his edict of Cyrus allowed under Sheshbashar uh, to allow them to go home. After Cyrus died in 530 BCE, Darius consolidated power and he took office in 522 BCE. His system divided the different colonies into easily manageable districts overseen by governors. And we recognize one famous governor during this time period, a guy that came to be known in the book of Haggai chapter 2 is a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel got described as a signet ring upon God's hand. He was a governor during this time period. That God promised that he would bring back his people. Darius appointed him as governor over a district called the Yemad Medadinah. And it was a, literally an area of land where he put Zerubbabel over a little section or group of people. But Zerubbabel was, while he was serving as governor, was also pouring in the word of the Lord to this remnant of people. Zechariah emerged centering around the rebuilding of the temple. Zechariah wanted the temple of God to be restored. Unlike the Babylonians, the Persian Empire strove at great lengths to have cordial relationships between their people and their subjects. They wanted to have a good relationship. They were not mean people. In fact, you can go back and read in history, the Medes and the Persians actually were very hospitable and nice and very, uh, uh, if you will, uh, hospitable in terms of embracing the people that they had overtaken. They didn't go in there and just start killing everybody. They were very good. There was a good working relationship between them. The rebuilding of the temple was encouraged by the leaders of the empire in hopes that it would strengthen the local authorities in the land. This policy was good politics on the part of the Persians. The Jews viewed it as a blessing from God. And so, if you remember, there's a guy who comes to power. You know the story of a prophet by the name of Ezra. They go ahead of the people and they start building the walls and getting the walls put back together. And a guy by Nehemiah leaves his post of duty under King Ahasuerus. And he goes to, and King Artaxerxes, and he goes to try to help them build the wall. Get it back running. All this is to equip the body of Christ, the, the, the chosen people of God, to strengthen them and to help them to grow and to have faith in God again. But I would cautious us tonight to look before we dive into the four R's of true revival that that is where we are today. Our nation has seen better days in the past than we see today. Just... Two and a half, two weeks ago or so, we shared on Sunday morning about the shattered nation we live in, but also the broken church that's created the shattered nation. We discussed how the reason the world is where it's at is because the church failed on their part. Now, 
before I get any further, I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that just because things don't look good doesn't mean God's not still good. And just because things don't seem right doesn't mean God can't make it all right. And just because things seem bleak doesn't mean God still doesn't have people of faith and people of hope. You see, we've navigated for two and a half years this thing we called COVID. Scary? Yes. Loss of lives? Yes. But we're still having church, and we're still here, and God's still got a people, and we're still worshiping the Lord. Do I feel bad for all the people that lost their lives? Yes. Do I feel sorry for all the people that had to go through challenging times and tragic circumstances? Yes. But God left a remnant here to remind the world He's still in the miracle-working business. Zechariah says that two-thirds of the people of God would be moved out of the way, if you will, and a third would remain as a remnant. He was talking about how during that particular time period when the Romans would come to power, the Romans would literally try to annihilate two-thirds of the Jewish population and only leave about a third of the Jewish nation left. But John, the revelator, he understood this mathematical phenomenon of thirds, 33%, 66%, 99%. He understood the value of the law of thirds. Those of you that were here this morning, you know we discussed very briefly about the number three and how that Moses was hidden for three months and Jonah was in the heart of the earth and Jesus in the tomb three months. Three months to represent that number three has some divine order and completion attached to it. Well, if you take 99, guess what that's a derivative of? The number three. 66, that's a derivative of the number three. 33 is a derivative of the number three. In reality, You see throughout Scripture this idea, and John the Revelator understood that because he said one of the plagues God would send when he poured out his bold judgments. But he'd send a plague, and there would be a derivative of the number three of the world's population just wiped off the face of the earth. That third, that two-thirds, that percentage. We see it all throughout Scripture. But there is still... Even in the day and hour that we're living in, there is still unfinished business for God. We're not done yet. We're not still sitting on this earth breathing oxygen and air and collecting space just because God's got nothing better to do in heaven. God's not behind on His codes and zones and His building projects. God could snap His finger and make all of this be here and done no more, have every mansion built no more. God's not up there still waiting for a supply of nails to come in because they're on back order from supply, inflation, and demand. God's not lacking nails to finish the job. God's not waiting for the two-by-four to come down or the the, the plywood to come down because it's too expensive for him to build the project. God's not doing that. But that means if we're still here, that obviously means God still has something for us to do. Now, you hear this pastor carefully before everybody goes running out of here and writing a post on Facebook and creating everything and getting me in trouble and then I'll be in trouble and then I'll be put in Facebook jail and we'll all be in trouble together. On third, on Friday, my Facebook messenger was blowing up with people asking me why I had not as a religious leader in this community and a religious voice 
lots of people on my Facebook account, why I had not wrote a post about the Supreme Court's decision. You, you need to say, I mean, this is a day of celebration. This is, this is a day, I mean, praise the Lord. It's, a, it's overturned and this, 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 and this. And they're just blowing up. And I said, wait, 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 just wait. First of all, it didn't abolish abortion. It ain't over. The fight just began. All it did was say it was not, const- we didn't have to have a constitutional backing to allow you to do it from the federal government. All it did was put it back to your local states. Now, thankfully, states like South Carolina and others have already signed what is known as the fetal heartbeat bill that at six weeks, once you find the fetal heartbeat, you, there's no option for you and, and all this stuff. Now, you understand what I'm about to say carefully. Now, thank God for people and politicians in South Carolina and other states, but there are some states that ain't signing that bill. So it didn't annihilate it. It just shifted it a little bit. Now, will it cut down on some of it? Absolutely. But then somebody said, well, yeah, but... What about this and what about that? And they tried to, Brian and I talked about it over the weekend. They were like, well, people hurt some of the people that she knows and some of the people I know giving excuses. Well, in this case, you know, well, what about at this case? And what about at this case? And what about this case? And she and I, in much discussion, you know, I'm going to be very careful how I say it, but you only can get a baby a certain way. So if you don't do certain things, you ain't going to get pregnant. So... If you're not married, well, step one is, why don't you get married before you start trying to make babies you don't want? Step number two, let's just say you aren't religious. That's what I've heard people say. Well, I'm not a religious person. You know, I'm not a religious person. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I'm like, what is that? You're, a, you're weird is what you are. You know, I feel some energy force out there. No, you've been drinking too much Kool-Aid is what you've been drinking. I have seen... So then my next thing was, okay, but you don't want to get married. Well, the health department will give you free things to stop you from getting pregnant. Burn some gas. If it's that bad for you, stop it there. Just go in the door and knock and tell them that you just need to borrow some things, and they'll take care of that. But that still doesn't mean we got to have a little baby that we have to abort. See, there is a process. And I've heard people, well, what about in this case? And what about in this case? I was like, you're gagging a gnat swallowing, I mean, you're, you know, trying to gag a gnat swallow a camel here in this situation because you're just trying to make an excuse for something. It doesn't matter what answer somebody gives, it's going to be, well, but what about this? Or what about, you can always find a loophole in anything. But somebody hit me up in the corner and said, well, Pastor, you know, I'm just shocked you didn't go out there and just say this is a day of celebration. I said, why would I? They said, I can't believe you'd say that. I said, why would I do that? When most children of God are going to blow up Facebook and celebrate this day, but they're not going to do anything about the ones that get birthed because there is no abortion anymore. Now, you hear what I'm about to say. You can write on Facebook, Instagram, whatever you want to write it, tweet about it, whatever. You can blow it up and say this is a day of celebration. But there's going to be mothers, and no matter what situation you put it in, there's still going to be people that get pregnant. It's just going to happen. And there will be some people, they may not be able to afford to go to these other states and have the abortion, and hopefully they don't do it anyway, but they don't want the baby. That's the whole purpose of the abortion. They don't want it. So before we go out there and blow up about how this is a day of celebration, what are we going to do when the baby's born? The person said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm not going to write down and blow up and be like, oh, praise the Lord, this is a day of celebration. 
until I first give to a crisis pregnancy center, then I'll write, I'll write about it. Because somebody needs to tell a little girl or about how to raise her baby or how that, that's a gift from God. So I'm going to support or I'm going to send you know, a donation to some kind of adoption agencies because we're going to need more of them for all the babies that we are no longer going to allow to be subjected to being killed. Uh, unmercifully, uh, I'm going to support these initiatives to help these babies find an adoptive home or find a parent, uh, some family, family who can't have children. But the fight's just begun. We still have work to do. It's not over. It's just now time to step up to the plate and do what God called us to do. The Bible said... Neglect not the widows and the orphan. That's pure and undefiled religion. Well, if you have a baby and you abandon it, you know what we call those? Orphaned. Orphaned. People out there on Facebook, I've asked probably 20 people that I've seen put things on Facebook. I emailed them and said, do you support a, uh, in any way, shape, or form, do you volunteer at a crisis pregnancy center? Do you give any money towards adoption services? Do you do anything? And they're like, no. I was like, are you going to start? Well, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. I was like, then you don't really need to be talking right now. You don't have to like what I say. Next Sunday, you can come preach. I don't care. I'll be glad to let you have your turn. But the people of God, and I'm not talking about just locally. I'm talking about globally. We talk a big talk, but then when God gives us opportunities to put our money where our mouth is, we don't walk the walk. We talk a big game, but God gives us opportunities, and we shut down when it gives us presented opportunities. The people of God have been talking for years. We want a temple. We want to rebuild it. We want, we want, we want. And then Darius and Cyrus, they give them this opportunity. And Zechariah and Malachi said, okay, God's going to give the opportunity, but it's going to come with a price tag. It ain't going to be easy. Two-thirds of you won't even see this happen. God's just going to move you out the way. So how do you really, as a church of the living God, not just locally, not just in a communal sense, but globally, how can we have revival of the church again? Before we can revive the nation, the church has got to wake up. The Bible says judgment begins at the house of the Lord. Washington's not going to wake up if the church don't have a clue what they're doing. That's good preaching even if you act like you're a different church tonight. So how do you become this church of revival? Well, the first thing you have to do, you've got to get rid of rebellion. The Bible says rebellion is as of the sin of witchcraft. I don't know about you, but I don't know how many people actually think witchcraft's a lot of fun. Most people ain't going to raise their hand and say, yes, I love being a witch. No, you don't. You don't like witchcraft. You think that's crazy stuff. That's of the devil. Huh. Well, so is rebellion. It's of the devil. Now, I know most people are thinking right now, oh, the pastor's going to go on his little... A little tangent about how people rebel and they're complaining about church and they're complaining about it. No, no, I don't have to tell you about it because most people that are rebellious, rebellious, they already know. I don't have to tell them they already. They, they like to call themselves a maverick. That's a fancy word to say you don't like what other people are doing. I remember before he died, John McCain, great senator from Arizona, used to always say, yes, he was of the Republican Party. But he was a maverick. I thought, so basically what you're saying is, you're going to do your own thing no matter what the rest of them do. <laughs> you can say what you want to. See, some people say, well, Pastor, I'm not, I'm not rebellious. I just, I just have a strong personality. Oh, okay. Some people don't have a personality, much less the strong one. I go some places and I'm thinking, you don't have a strong personality. You have no personality. 
2 Kings chapter 23, King Joash comes to power after the death of his father. His father wasn't really operating in a good way. His father actually promoted wickedness in the land. He promoted rebellion. He promoted uh, sin in the land. His father promoted that the nation turn from God and serve the Baals and the idols and, and the, the other nations. And when Joash come to power, he recognized something. This ain't working. This doesn't work. We're not being blessed because God is not going to bless sin. So the Bible tells us in 2 Kings chapter 23, he calls for the people of God, his scribes, and he says, I want you to go to the house of God, at that time the temple, and I want you to find me the ancient scrolls, and I want you to find me the word, of, and that day it would be considered today like the word of God. He basically said, somebody bring me a Bible. Boy, I could preach here for a while. I may just have to bring part two next week. I don't think I'm going to get through this thing tonight, but we'll get, we'll get there eventually. He said, guys, I might be the CEO of this land. I might be the president. I might be the chief executive officer. I might be the chief financial officer. But here's what I need you to do. I need you to go to church. That was the temple. I need you to go find the preacher's Bible, the ancient scrolls. I need you to bring me back what the word of the Lord is on that scroll. I need you to bring. Don't read it to me. I want you to bring me the book. Can I tell you that back in the day, I have a couple in my office of my grandfather's Bibles, and sometimes I'll scroll through and I'll see pages of where he's underlined something or where he's wrote something in the margin, and he's dead gone and already in the, been in the presence of the Lord since 1994. But sometimes I'll sit in my office in 2022 and read something on a page, and it'll speak to me like it's never spoke to me before. That man's been in the grave. He's been in the presence of the Lord, but he had an ancient word that he wrote on a scroll called his Bible, and he laid it on his bedside table. And over the years, it's gotten passed down to me and sometimes I'll sit in that little office back there and I'll read the ancient word of the Lord and I'll read where somebody else got a word from God and heard a divine message from God and when I read it it'll speak to me and I'll be like oh God that's what I've been looking for that's the word I needed to hear we don't need somebody else to tell us we need to go to church we need to get our Bible we need to get the book and we need to say what does thus saith the word of the Lord he said I want you to read it to me give me this book let me hear what the word of the Lord said he said the men of Judah the inhabitants of Jerusalem the priests the prophets and all the people both great and small he read in their hearing the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. 2 Kings 23 and verse number 2. Then the, in verse number 3, the king stood by the pillar and he made a covenant before God. And he was said, I'm going to walk after the Lord. I'm going to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all my heart and with all my soul to carry out the words of the covenant that are written in this book and the people of God came together in agreement with him notice what I said in verse number two he the preacher the pastor the the, the king of the day he read the book what have I done to you this morning and tonight I have read from his book today from the house of the Lord he read of the book and he made a commitment 
to God and said, God, I'm going to do what your word says. Can I tell you that we have to listen to what thus saith the word of the Lord and come in one mind and one accord in agreement and say, Pastor, I'm going to study the word. Pastor, I'm going to live the word. Pastor, I'm going to read the word. And together as the body of Christ, tell all of this rebellion and all this mess in the world around us, say you can go back to hell where you came from because we decree and declare thus saith the word of the Lord. Then when he got done, I'm not going to read it. You can go read 2 Kings 23 for yourself. They just gave you a free. I just told you you need to read the Bible. There you go. Go home and read it. The Bible says that he goes, after he reads that, he calls for his group of men, and he starts writing what is called reforms. He starts rewriting the laws of the land. He said, I want you to go get every idol, every one of them. Search the whole kingdom. Bring back every image. Bring back every bale. Cut down every astral poles, which were just like symbolic places throughout the land where people could use them as almost like spiritual monuments. He said, I want you to cut them down to the ground. I want you to bring me back every bale. I want you to bring all the other gods. And the Bible said he collected them together and he made a great fire. And he threw all of the idols in front of the people and basically said, we're going to burn them. We're going to get rid of them. We're going to remove the rebellion in the land. We're not going to rebel. We're not going to worship this image. We're not going to worship this God. We're not going to worship this being. We're not going to serve this other country. We are going to get back to serving, thus saith the word of the Lord. We're going to serve God and God alone. And he threw this in a fire and the people of God watched it burn before their eyes. He smashed the altars to the ground. He pulverized them to dust. He reinstituted the act of Passover back in the land. It had been removed. He instituted Passover again back in the land. He brought worship back to the house of God. Zechariah 13 and 1, I read it in our reading today. When we read today, it says, On that day the fountain... The house of David inhabits to Jerusalem. There will be a fountain for sin and for defilement. The Bible says they'll come about, verse 2, declares the Lord that I will eliminate all the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered and I will remove the prophets and the unclean spirit. That's what, Joe, that's what Joash did in 2 Kings 23. He got rid of all of it. He sent it, sent it packing. You see, God will only allow the wicked to rule for a season. Because there is pleasure in sin for a season. Matthew 3 and 12. Jesus said, His winnowing fan is in His hand and He will thoroughly clean out His threshing floor. He will gather the wheat into the barn. He will burn up fire. He will burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. What did He throw the idols in? Fire! The winnowing fork was a shaped basket, shovel-like tool that you would use, that you would throw this wheat up in the air. You would get under it and you would throw it up. And the chaff, which was like wheat, but it was not as, it was like a weed, if you will. But it was lightweight. So in the wind, it would just, and the grain, the wheat, because it had the heads of grain on it, was heavier. It would just, right down to the ground. They'd keep throwing it up. 
weeds would drift, but the grain would fall. The Bible says to us that some people are like seaweed on the bottom of an ocean. They'll just go to and fro. They'll just go wherever the wind is blowing, wherever the way. They just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But James said it like this, but a double-minded man is unstable. You can't depend on him. You throw it up, the chaff blows, the wheat falls. But notice what it is. He says a winnowing fork. There's going to be times in our life God's going to have to prod us at times. <laughs> we don't like being prodded. It's not comfortable. But it's necessary. Sometimes God's got... That's why the, Jesus said in his parable, he said you can't just go in there and just start ripping up all the wheat because if you try to pull up all the weeds, you might pull up the good grain. you got to let them grow up together. Then at the harvest time do it because if not, something will get messed up in the process. Sometimes we have to get prodded. Sometimes we have to get stuck. Sometimes we have to get shifted around. Sometimes God moves us around. and Sometimes God doesn't let us stay comfortable in, in our places. Sometimes He continues to move us about because He's trying to get rid of things we don't need attached to our lives. He's got to let some sins. He's got to let some struggles. He's got to let some addictions. He's got to let some things get off of us so that we can run the race and set before us with, with endurance and perseverance. We've got to lay aside those weights that easily entangle us. God's got to get rid of some stuff so the good stuff comes to the surface you see they would throw the grain high in the air and the wind would blow and the lighter grain the heavier grain would fall Jeremiah says oh Israel says the Lord if you wanted to return to me you could have you could throw away your detestable idols and stray no more then and you swear by my name saying surely as the Lord lives you could do so with truth justice and righteousness you could be a blessing to the nations of the world. And the people would come and see you. And praise my name. What Jeremiah was saying is. You could have done it. You could have been. The face of the franchise. You could have been the thing God uses. To win the nations. You could have done it. You know I wonder. For time's sake we'll. Pick up from there. Miss Carol you can make your way. I wonder. If God sometimes looks over the bow of heaven. He looks down to us here in 2022 in this nation we live in and says, you know, you could do it. You can make the turn. You could be an example to the nations of the world. If you would humble yourselves and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then I could come and I could forgive you of your sins and I could heal your land. But you gotta do you gotta turn from some things. I wonder if God looks over the bow of heaven and thinks you, just like the Jeremiah prophesied, you could be the nation that the world looks to. You could if you just get rid of all the detestable things, all the idols. If you get rid of that junk and call on me, I can change this thing. But you got to get rid of some stuff first before I can come in. See, Joash knew in 2 Kings 23, he knew that the way things were going, the status quo of the day wasn't working. Some changes had to be made and he got rid of some things. And he literally, the Bible said, he returned the hearts of the people back toward God. So that's what church is all about now. That's what preachers of the gospel are designed to do. That's what their calling is to do. To turn the hearts of people back towards God. 
get them to refocus and not get lost by all the craziness going on in the world around us. We get their eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. We got to get people to refocus back on what it's all about, and that's Jesus. It's not easy to do, but it's necessary. See, the very first thing before anybody can ever experience revival. Remember what I said, revival is not for the sinner. It's for the saint because we're the ones that have once lived. Sometimes we kind of go through valleys, but we got to have a rekindling of fire with inside of us. You know why churches aren't having revival? I'm not talking about Sunday through Friday and everybody comes for you know, a series of meetings and is tired by the end of the week from being in church all week long. No, no I'm not talking about physical revival. You know why a lot of churches haven't seen true revival? Salvations, Holy Spirit baptisms, etc., why they haven't experienced true revival in service? Because they got a lot of rebellion in the house they haven't removed. They got sin in the camp. Like Joshua, they went to the battle of Ai. They got beat by... Le- they, the people of Ai were less... Joshua said, I don't even need to take the whole army. I can just take a small fraction. Which more My little small group of men are more than the whole city's army. We can just take a small group and go over there. And the Bible said, brother, there they got their behinds whipped by the people of Ai. God come, Joshua come back and said, God, how in the world did we lose that battle? Don't even make sense. We've done bigger and better. How did we lose that? You know what God said? You got sin in the camp. That's why I can't bless you. You got sin in the camp. They started drawing straws that fell on a guy by the name of Achan. Joshua said, Achan, what have you done? Achan said, you know, when you said we weren't supposed to take the spoils, I took some. They're hidden in my tent. The Bible said Joshua goes. He sends the people. Sure enough, they find it. Just be thankful that I'm not Joshua. I'm not that kind of pastor. Because the Bible said when Joshua found it, he brought him before the people. The the people that were doing wrong, he stood them before the people and he said, this family has brought sin into the camp. And that's the reason God's not blessing us. And that's the reason we lost this battle. And they stoned them. Aren't you glad I'm not Joshua? Y'all should be praising God for that right now. Because I don't even have enough stones, so I'm not going to stone you. But he stoned them. Then they went back to that same place, and God gave them the victory. He said, Pastor, that's kind of a harsh reality. But the picture of it, no, not really, because the picture of it is God's not going to bless the camp where sin is involved. The reason a lot of churches are not seeing revival, experiencing revival, or having the spirit of the Lord move in a powerful and a special way in their life is because somewhere in the camp there's sin and the people of God need to be praying and asking God for discernment, saying, God, why is our finances not being blessed? Why is our church not growing? Why are we not seeing salvations? And find out where it is that we need to remove the sin in the camp, the rebellion in the camp. Oh, I know there are churches out there that they got, more, they got a lot of people, but I've said to you many times, and I die by this statement, just because there's a crowd doesn't mean Jesus is in the building. <laughs> the Bible said Jesus fed thousands of people, but he always ministered to one person at a time, not thousands. He might have fed five thousands, but one woman got healed with an issue of blood. One person by Jairus' daughter got healed. Thousands of people wanted something, a free handout from Jesus. Hello, preacher. That's good preaching. Thousands of people wanted a handout, but nobody wanted to put in the work to get the job 
done. Thousands of people thronged Jesus, but only one woman was willing to push her way through the crowd and bow before his feet. God's not interested in you standing up with high piety and saying, but God, I deserve it. He wants you at his feet. That's when he's going to make a way. Some of us in this room, we've got doctor's appointments coming up, biopsies, scans, and things like that that are coming up. God's able to do it. He's able to be a miracle worker. We've seen it. We've seen people in our own church experience it. There's a lot of churches out there, they haven't seen a miracle like that. It's been a long day since they've seen a salvation. It's been a long time since they've seen a miracle take place. And I don't mean this, and I'm not speaking about any church specifically, but I just know in times past and different places, I know why some of those places haven't. Because people that were on their stage, actively living with a boy or a girl that is not their spouse, but they're leading the people of God in worship. How? How can God bless the Asaphs and the Davids of the world in worship when I'm sinning in the camp? How can my praise go up as a sweet aroma of God when I'm burning false incense in the Bible when the, the prophet, uh, when the uh, uh, preacher, and the priest, Eli's son went and offered foreign, uh, or excuse me, Aaron's son, when they offered foreign fire, they died. They burned unholy incense. They God killed them. Thank God he ain't doing that no more. That'd be really embarrassing. You go to sing on Sunday morning, get zapped on stage right in front of the people. It would be eye-opening. Not everybody would sign up to be on the praise team at that point, but... But people go to church and they live in sin. They're lifting their hands and they're trying to usher you into a throne room. You can't usher me into a throne room that you're not even in. You can't usher me into a presence of God because you can't obviously be in the presence of God because if you were in the presence of God, you would have to remove your sin because you couldn't stand before a holy God living that way. We have pastors and churches allowing it to be on their stages, in their classrooms, leadership capacities. And I'll even take it a step further. Even the men standing behind the lectern are living where they shouldn't be living. Trying to tell you how to live and get close to God and they're nowhere even closer to God than you are because they're living in sin. Oh, Pastor, when do you know that? Well, it's like places like Greenville, South Carolina that just a couple weeks ago had a service on Sunday morning called Drag Me Back to Church. There was a drag queen designed led service with openly homosexual preachers and teachers of homosexual lifestyles coming, leading worship and preaching about the all inclusiveness of God in the church saying that it's okay because God's an all inclusive God. Then when the church almost split over it they moved it to a satellite location because half the church was bailing but still promoted from first and first such and such church of Greenville, South Carolina. Please come this Sunday to said location sponsored by such and such church and have the person preaching being a drag queen that was the pastor that Sunday. This week alone I watched a video of a man who proclaims himself to be a prophet but he's married to a man. And he said that the homosexual agenda is actually the movement God's going to use to 
revive the world and draw them closer to Him because it's going to show the world that God is an all God of, uh, of inclusivity. He's a God of all inclusion. He loves everyone. And God, since God makes no mistakes, He knew what we were and that we have it wrong and they are going to lead the charge because God, and that they're going to have churches. They're up there. I saw the church service. They're up there worshiping. They're dancing before the Lord. They're praying for people in the altar. Praying for him. Guy gets up there to preach and brings up his husband on stage to close out service because God and he said I just want to let you know what a wonderful service didn't you feel the presence of the Lord while holding his husband's hand God can't bless it till we remove it God can't bless it till it's removed now I know somebody on Facebook right now probably wrote me about 150 nasty comments sent me about 300 mad emoji faces and some of them probably already called Facebook to censor me and probably censor our account. You know what? They can take me off of Facebook if they want to block us up in jail on Facebook or send all the nasty comments. I'm not going to cower down to their agenda. Period. I just won't have one. Just ain't going to happen. Because I do believe there's going to be a remnant, a third that I read to you. He said there'll be a third that God will try by fire. Oh, I believe there's going to be a third. But I'm going to be in the third that has to walk through adversity, that has to walk through fire, has to walk because I will come out like that fuller soap, that launderer soap. I'll come out purified as gold. I'm not going to condone your sin. I'm not going to promote your sin. And I'm certainly not going to let you live in sin. I'm going to call it as it is. And I'm going to pray God removes it because I'm going to stand before God with clean hands and a pure heart and say God I did everything in my ability to remove it from your camp now for those of you who don't like that there's a lot of other churches you can go to but we will not condone sin in this house it's just that simple if you want that kind of lifestyle those online whatever you want that we love you. We'll pray for you. Find that place. But this house will not become a house of horror. This house will not become a house of sin. And this house, we will we'll love you. We'll be inclusive in terms of loving you to Jesus and showing you Jesus. But we expect when you meet Jesus, there's a change. Old things pass away. All things become new. And something has to change. If nothing changes, you ain't going to heaven. It has to change or you're not going through those pearly gates. Will you stand all over the house this evening? Father, to the very best of my ability, I have preached your word to your people. God, we're living in a time where we need a revival of our church. Not just locally, but globally. We need a remnant to rise up and say, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're not going to cower down. We're not going to curtail. We're going to stand for God. God, in this house, I do believe there are good men and women. To the best of their ability, they are passionate about the things of God. So God, tonight, I'm asking that in this moment in time, you would encourage them and speak to them. Let the words that have been spoken today have a lasting impact on our heart, our life when we leave this place and go to and fro our destination let us not leave this place hurting discouraged distraught or downcast let us lift up our eyes from which cometh our help for our help cometh from the Lord 
Father, I'm asking today you bless us and keep us your face shine upon us. Be gracious to us. Lift your countenance towards us. Give us the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding and guard our hearts. Let the words of our mouths and meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Bring us back safely the next appointed time and help us be called, be the called chosen people of God that will walk in the precepts line by line, precept upon precept, according to thus saith the word of the Lord. Let us live your word out daily in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before you're dismissed and we pray our benedict.